Welcome, welcome. This episode was made for you if you're interested in geriatrics, neurology, or cognitive testing in general, as we'll go through the latest publications on clinical assessment cognitive decline. That's right, nine papers published in May 2022 on testing neurocognitive domains for the screening or diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's disease, or dementia in general. Stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello, friends. This is Sarah Luidi, your host for this episode on clinical assessment in Alzheimer's disease. What a joy and a privilege it is to be speaking to you on a topic that I find fascinating, both for professional and personal reasons. I did my master's work on amyloid beta aggregation kinetics and neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease, and I'm now focusing on a more clinical path in medical school. My involvement as a host at Aminder reflects the switch, as I used to host the episodes on amyloid beta-mediated pathology and the immune system, and I'm now focusing on cognitive assessment, so perhaps you'll find my voice familiar. Today I'm covering abstracts published in May 2022, where researchers tried to develop or refine clinical assessment tools. You may have noticed that I said that I'm covering abstracts, not papers. This is what we do at Aminder. We conduct a search on PubMed using the word Alzheimer. We download all the abstracts for the primary papers that result from the search, sort them into distinct categories to shape these episodes, then we summarize them for you in these flash news-like podcasts. If a paper catches your interest, you can find the full citation in our numbered bibliography linked in the show notes. The goal is not to replace the process of reading and critically appraising these papers. No. But we want to help you keep up with what's out there so you don't have to do those tedious searches on PubMed and skim through hundreds of titles and abstracts. We do that for you. I have to thank Ellen Rowe for conducting the search and the team members who processed hundreds of abstracts published in May to categorize them by aim and methods. And that would be Christy, Ben, Eden, Ellen Kosh, and Kira. Our team is big, international and made of wonderful scientists who deeply care about science communication. If this resonates with you, consider joining us. Get in touch on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. Think about it. I'll be waiting to hear from you. Perhaps this selection of summaries will tickle your fancy, or even intrigue you and draw you to considering our invitation. This episode is dedicated to abstracts where researchers look at neurocognitive domains to better detect Alzheimer's disease or to distinguish it from other forms of dementia. So this will be particularly relevant to you if you do any work on clinical assessment or if you're interested in neurology, neuropsychiatry, or geriatrics. Only nine papers made it here, so while this has the potential to be a shorter episode, I'm also excited about the opportunity to give more background 
before and in between summaries to help you make sense of the terminology. Some of it will sound familiar as, fortunately, the definition of neurocognitive domains does not change month to month, but I'll try my best to keep it interesting. Some papers are not covered here but are listed in the bibliography, and those cover new screening tools that involve automation or just refining an existing method. If you're new to the field and are wondering what I mean by neurocognitive domains, here's a brief introduction. Know that this is very similar to the introduction I gave last month and the one prior, and you may skip to the first section of our summaries, and timestamps are available in our show notes to help you with this. When we talk about cognition, especially in neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, we may think about learning and memory, which are indeed very important aspects of our cognitive functioning and our functioning in general. This includes working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory. Then we further categorize long-term memory into implicit, like procedural and priming, or explicit, like declarative and semantic memory. This becomes relevant when we look at specific subfields in the hippocampus, for example, what type of memory is affected or spared in injury. In Alzheimer's disease, we typically see a decline in working memory and long-term declarative memory. With this said, cognitive functioning is not limited to learning and memory. There are five other neurocognitive domains in the DSM-5 classification. Language is one of them, and for this we can test someone's ability to find words, name objects, or even their speech fluency and grammar. We'll have one abstract on this coming up soon. A third domain is executive function, and this is important for planning and decision-making. Then, perceptual motor function, like visual-spatial perception and motor coordination. Attention is another neurocognitive domain and refers to how we can selectively focus on tasks or objects. And last is social cognition, like how we recognize and regulate our emotions. In this episode, we will be going through abstracts organized in four sections. The first three sections being one for each of these neurocognitive domains, learning and memory, perception and motor function, and then language. The fourth and final section is what I categorize as activities of daily living, which I will describe more in detail when we get there. The classification is based on the DSM-5 approach, and you can read more on it in the paper Classifying Neurocognitive Disorders, the DSM-5 Approach by Parminder and colleagues, published in 2014 in Nature Reviews Neurology. We can test these domains separately or together with assessment tools that follow an interview style, or involve tasks like drawing or moving or recall. I hope I didn't bore you with this general introduction as I'm moving to the first section of the episode, Learning and Memory. And I do have to apologize if you hear any noise out there. I live in a very busy intersection of downtown Vancouver and Saturday nights that to get a little crazy here. Alright, let's get started. Paper number one almost didn't make the cut in our initial screen because it focuses on dementia with Louis bodies, but our Alzheimer's disease enthusiasts here will find a tidbit just for you in this abstract titled Clinical Manifestations of Early Onset Dementia with Louis Bodies Compared with Late Onset Dementia with Louis Bodies and Early Onset Alzheimer's Disease. 
You'll find it published in JAMA Neurology by first author Sim, last author Tink, who are affiliated with Singapore General Hospital. In this retrospective case control study, the authors want to better distinguish early-onset Lewy body dementia that manifests before 65 years of age from late-onset, which usually manifests after that age cutoff. Furthermore, and this is where your ears may perk up, they want to distinguish early-onset Lewy body dementia from early-onset Alzheimer's disease. This study involved close to 850 participants with Alzheimer's and over 200 participants with Lewy body dementia. Among other things, the authors found some characteristics that predisposed participants to a diagnosis of early-onset dementia with Lewy body over early-onset Alzheimer's disease. These characteristics are visual hallucinations, slowness, apathy, and motor deterioration preceding cognitive decline. Amnestic features settle with late-onset dementia with Lewy body in addition to more neuritic and diffuse plaques, which makes it harder to distinguish it from Alzheimer's disease. If you're interested in distinguishing between different types of dementia, this may be a paper to check. Before I move on to the next paper, may I introduce a test you will hear about a lot in this field, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, otherwise known as the MOCA. This is a questionnaire of 30 items that involve recall, drawing, and counting, along with other activities. And this allows us to assess various cognitive domains and executive function. This test is widely used for the detection of dementia, as it holds high sensitivity and good specificity. It's been around for a while now, as far back as 1992, and has seen multiple iterations and improvement cycles and even efforts to translate it and adapt it to various cultural backgrounds and mental abilities. Our regular listeners at Aminder would have heard me cover abstracts on this almost every month, and this month is no exception. We got a few papers here looking at MOCA. Paper number two specifically is focused on the sensitivity of this test early on in the continuum of memory decline, introducing Abstracts number two, titled Using the Montreal Cognitive Assessment to Identify Individuals with Subtle Cognitive Decline. You'll find it in a journal called Neuropsychology, published by Sersonsky and Brick, these are the first and last authors, affiliated with Warren Alpert Medical School and Memory and Aging Program. In this paper, as far as I understand, the authors want to see if we can detect cognitive decline earlier if we went beyond the total score and instead zoomed in on individual items. So say, in case someone doesn't do well on half of the test, then picks themselves up with the other half, maybe we would be missing a good indicator of decline if we added everything up and ignored the individual areas where they didn't do so well. The authors grouped some of these items to single out these clusters. A high-performing cluster, where individuals show no deficits at all, a memory deficits cluster, and last, a compound deficit cluster combining memory and executive function. Interestingly, 
they found demographic differences between these clusters. For example, those with compound deficits tended to be older and fewer of them were married. Also, female participants were more represented in those with memory deficits. Therefore, keeping these differences in mind, using a cluster-based analysis in our clinical assessment can help us detect those at risk for cognitive decline earlier on. Okay, okay, the mocha may be all good and dandy, but if you get someone's past medical history and assessments, and is he a score on the MMSP, maybe you want to see how they would perform on the mocha, would you administer this test again? Or say, in the academic setting, you're trying to compile a review on cognitive decline and you find papers where participants were picked based on their MMSE score and others using MOCA or something like the ADAS-COG, and so on. Is there a way to equalize the field and normalize these scores? This is the question that ailed the authors of the next paper. So let's see what they did in abstract number 3, titled Conversion Between the Mini Mental State Examination and the Montreal Cognitive Assessment for Patients with different forms of dementia. You'll find it in the journal titled The Journal of the American Medical Directors Associations, published by Rohiger and Garcia Ptasek, who are affiliated with University Medicine Grace Falt in Germany and Karolinska Institutet in Sweden. In this observational cohort study, the authors evaluate 387 patients of the Swedish Registry for Cognitive Dementia Disorders who had scores on both the MMSE and MOCA. With this, they generated a conversion table for different types of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, Parkinson's dementia, and Lewy body dementia, and also for patients with dementia with and without previous stroke. I haven't seen the paper itself yet, but this seems like a handy tool in both research and clinical settings. Moving on to paper number four titled Cross-Sectional Associations of CSF Tau Levels with Ray's AVLT, a Recency Ratio Study. It was published in the journal Neuropsychology by first author Bruno and last author Mueller who are affiliated with Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute and Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. One way to assess the validity of a memory test is to compare the scores to known Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, such as amyloid beta and tau load in the CSF. This is exactly what the authors of this paper do with the RAISE Auditory Verbal Learning Test otherwise known as the AVLT. This test assesses total, delayed, and process-based recall. Luckily, this is not difficult to do when test scores and CSF load values are kept in registries. The authors harnessed the resources provided by the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention for 235 participants with cognitive function ranging from normal to mildly impaired. They found a moderate association between the process-based learning component on the test and tau measures in the CSF, such as total and phosphotau, but not with a beta loads. 
Total and delayed recall scores, on the other hand, did not correlate with any of the three biomarkers measured in the CSF. Again, that is total tau, phosphotau, and amyloid beta. They conclude that process-based measures on the AVLT are superior to traditional total and delayed recall measures from the AVLT in reflecting tau load in the CSF in non-demented people. Remember, the participants were either uh, cognitively normal or mildly impaired, but not severely impaired. To close this section on memory, and maybe a good bridge to the next section on perceptual and motor skills, we've got a paper on visual binding in associative memory. Abstract number five is titled, Testing Visual Binding by the TMA-93 in People Aged 75 and Over. You'll find it in the Journal uh, of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Garcia Roldan and last author Franco Marcias. They're affiliated with Hospital Universitario Virgen del Rocío in Spain, Hospital Universitario Juan Ramón Jiménez in Spain as well, and L'Hôpital Saint-Louis in France. This paper introduces a test that I was not familiar with. That is the TMA-93, or the Memory Associative Test of the District of Saint-Saint-Denis. You show participants pairs of drawings of familiar objects in the encoding stage. Then you show them one of the two images and ask them to recall the missing one. I should specify that the pairs are semantically related, so this way we're assessing episodic memory and associative learning. There have been quite a few publications on this test, but the authors of paper number five think that it has not been validated in individuals over 75 years of age, or actually demographically those at higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. This study involved over 650 participants of various ages, genders, and educational attainments. They found that a score of 26 over 30 was minimally achieved at the 50th percentile across groups. However, there were differences when they went down to the 10th percentile with a maximum score of 24 over 30 among those with higher educational achievements, and 19 over 30 among those with the lowest. Therefore, we should be warned to consider educational background when assessing people with major cognitive decline. Those at of 75 years of age and older with preserved cognitive function tend to do well on the TMA-93. All right, the midpoint of this episode is a good time for a break, a few words from our sponsor, and one more attempt from me to entice you to join us. I'll be right back. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem.
We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back. Now on to our section on another neurocognitive domain, that is perceptual and motor skills. Only one paper was slotted here this month. Paper number six is titled Pattern and Implications of Neurological Examination Findings in Autosomal Dominant Alzheimer's Disease. It was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by first author Vogelang and last author is Levin. This is a result of a huge collaboration with many, many authors expanding over 10 lines, and they seem to be affiliated with the dominantly inherited Alzheimer's network. There are a few other affiliations, 31 of them actually. I'll only list some. So Ludwig Maximilian's Universität München in Germany, German Center for Neurocognitive Disease, Washington University School of Medicine, and the Munich Cluster for Systems Neurology. In this paper, we focus on a segment of the population that has autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. Are there neurological findings that can help delineate them from those who do not carry the mutation? Seems like there are some. Abnormal deep tendon reflexes, gait disturbance, pathological cranial nerve exam, tremors, abnormal finger-to-nose and heel-to-shin testing, and motor strength. These are all more affected in those with autosomal dominant Alzheimer's than their wild-type counterparts. Their cognitive function also declines at a rate twofold faster alongside with more brain atrophy in the parietal temporal region. To me, a comprehensive neurological exam that includes motor function, reflexes, gait, coordination, and cranial nerves still seems less invasive and more accessible than imaging. Although, I would never object to using both. What do you think? Alright, let's now dive into another neurocognitive domain that's super important for our functioning as species, and that is language. Verbal fluency encompasses phonemic and semantic fluency. Semantic fluency refers to how many words a person can say in a given amount of time within a certain category. Like, how many fruits can you name in one minute? Or how many animals? This requires understanding the meaning of what is said. With phonemic fluency, we're looking at how many words one can generate that begin with a certain letter. So if I said, give me as many words as possible that start with F in one minute, we might say fruit, frog, fabric, feast, fasting, February, and so on. Both verbal fluency tests give us an indication of executive functioning, and this is why they are relevant to our study of Alzheimer's disease. Abstract number 7 looks at the difference between the two. You will find it published in the journal called Neuropsychology, Development, and Cognition in Section B, Aging, Neuropsychology, and Cognition. It was published by Gordon and Chen, who are affiliated with the University of Iowa under the title 
how well does the discrepancy between semantic and letter verbal fluency performance distinguish Alzheimer's dementia from typical aging? In this paper, the authors want to see which one of phonemic or semantic fluency is most affected in Alzheimer's disease compared to aging adults. When they say letter fluency, know that this falls under the umbrella of phonemic fluency, okay? They compared over 100 individuals with Alzheimer's disease with over 60 aging adults and found that quantitatively, scores on verbal fluency with, were lower among those with Alzheimer's disease, but qualitatively, both groups were similar, suggesting that a decline in semantic fluency is a normal part of aging, which contributes to the decline we see in Alzheimer's disease in this measure. And in general, they also found that age and performance on the MMSE were the strongest predictors of cognitive function. More on semantic memory with abstract number 8, titled Picture Naming Test for a Linguistically Diverse Population with Cognitive Impairment and Dementia. You'll find it published in the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders by Paplikar, first author. Last author is Vishwanath. This is also the product of a big collaboration with many, many affiliations. One of them would be the ICMR Neurocognitive Toolbox Consortium, as well as the Chandrasekhar Institute of Speech and Hearing in India, National Institute of Mental Health and Neuroscience in India as well, and let's name and one other one, the Medical College in Indore, India as well. Picture naming tests assess language function and more specifically, semantic memory, lexical, retrieval, and perceptual disturbances. You can imagine that it may come handy in assessing cognitive decline, seeing as language is a huge part of our neurocognitive functioning. However, the outcome of the measure is only as good as the measure itself. Picture naming seems simple, straightforward. But if you lived in an area where people spoke many different languages or dialects, where the same image could elicit a multitude of words to describe it, how would you decide which is the right word to use, huh? This is a predicament that the authors want to address, more specifically in the beautifully heterogeneous India. They harmonized 30 images across five languages, Hindi, Bengali, Telugu, Kannada, and Malayalam. They then administered the test to over 120 participants with mild cognitive impairment, over 120 with dementia, and over 360 controls. Those with mild cognitive impairment did better on this harmonized test in all five languages compared with those with dementia, and controls did better than both other groups. They also found good concordance between their proposed test and established ones like the Clinical Dementia Rating and the Addenbrooke's Cognitive Exam. They conclude that this cross-culturally adapted test holds good diagnostic accuracy in differentiating people with mild to moderate dementia from cognitively normal individuals. If you want to read more on it, they called it the Indian Council of Medical Research Picture Naming Test, or shorter, the ICMR-PNT. And last but not least, 
one paper on activities of daily living. Why is it here? Let me explain. Scores on cognitive assessment are great for diagnostic purposes, maybe for the paperwork. But in practice, we pay more attention to the activities of daily living because ultimately, how the patient functions and interacts with their environment is what matters to them. Basic activities of daily living, or basic ADLs, are essential daily activities such as personal hygiene, using the toilet, and eating. Other important activities that require more complex planning fall under instrumental ADLs, like shopping, managing medications, and housekeeping. And last, for advanced ADLs, we're looking at hobbies and working. All of these are important in establishing the clinical picture and the level of support needed by the patient. However, it can be tricky to assess ADL decline. At what point do we consider a change in function to be significant or meaningful even? This is the focus of the next and last abstract of this episode. Abstract number nine is titled Pursuing Clinical Meaningfulness, Determining the Minimal Important Change of Everyday Functioning in Dementia. It was published in the journal called Neurology by Doubleman, first author, and last author is Sikis. And if you listen to the episode I covered for the month of March, you may remember that the same group published a paper then on a very similar topic. They're affiliated with Ruhe University in Amsterdam. Harvard Medical School in the U.S., and University College London in the U.K. The authors propose what they call a minimal importance change, as in, what's the threshold at which we consider a change in activities of daily living to have had a significant impact on someone's life? They distributed a survey in a memory clinic where they asked over 1,600 caregivers and 13 clinicians to rate various situations. What did they consider to be a meaningful change in functioning in these scenarios? It was about minus 2.2 points for decline and plus 5 for improvement. They then applied these scores in assessing over 200 memory clinic patients for one year to see if those scores concorded with the diagnosis of dementia and brain atrophy. They found that 45% of the memory clinic patients had a decline in ADLs bigger than the established minimal importance change threshold. Those diagnosed with dementia were more likely to exceed this threshold by an odds ratio of 3.4, and those with more atrophy of the medial temporal lobe were more likely to exceed it by an odds ratio of 5. And this was compared to those with no subjective memory decline and no brain atrophy. In conclusion, the authors suggest that their proposed minimal importance change threshold can help interpret decline in activities of daily living, and more specifically, in instrumental activities of daily living in a clinical setting. If this is something you're interested in, I invite you to check my last episode from the March series. I covered a very similar paper by the uh, same group, where they proposed cutoffs to interpret the results in the Amsterdam Instrumental Activities of Daily Living questionnaire using very similar methods. Okay, that's it. Thank you for sticking around till the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. 
You can find the bibliography for this in the show notes. If you go to our site, amanda.com, and click on bibliography at the top of the page, you will be redirected to our drive where we keep all past bibliographies. We update it as we release episodes and also add the bibliographies for the topics that we do not cover. There are some papers I didn't cover today that you'll find in the biblio too. Here's a sneak peek. One of them is titled Development of a Machine Learning Model to Predict Mild Cognitive Impairment Using Natural Language Processing in the Absence of Screening. Another one is titled Assessing the Clinical Meaningfulness of the Alzheimer's Disease Composite Score Tool. Then there's one titled CVLT2, Short Form Force Choice Recognition in a Clinical Dementia Sample, Cautions for Performance Validity Assessment. While I'm at it, I'll read all of the titles. There's two or four left. Explainable Artificial Intelligence and Ambulatory Digital Dementia Screenings. There's one titled Characteristics of People Living with Undiagnosed Dementia, Findings from the CFAS Will Study. Two more, two more. Uh, Increasing the Cognitive Screening Efficiency of Global Phase 3 Trials in Early Alzheimer's Disease, the Cognitive Task Force. And last one here is titled Remote Neuropsychological Evaluation of Older Adults. So as you can see, there are a lot of titles published every month and we don't cover them all. So you should check our bibliography. It's free, it's accessible, it's online there for you. All past bibliographies and future ones will be there as well. There is so much out there. Every month we download all the abstracts with the word Alzheimer in them, categorize them into 38 categories and assign those categories to a host depending on their area of interest and expertise. Naturally, many topics do not get covered and we would love to recruit more people who care about Psycom and want an extra incentive to keep up with the news in their field. Topics that are up for grabs include amyloid beta aggregation, fluid biomarkers, oxidative stress, and more. If you study Alzheimer's disease and want to try your hand at podcasting, please get in touch. You don't have to host episodes to join us. You could help with audio editing, which is super easy, no experience needed to join the team for that, and a cool skill to acquire. We also have room in our bibliography team, sorting, advertising, funding, and more. Aside from the experience, you also get to interact with scientists from all around the world. We have team members from six different time zones, which makes it a little tricky to plan meetings. But we're very, very lucky that everyone here is so dedicated to bring you episodes three times a week. We do take breaks between months to recharge and sort papers, so if you see a break here and there, that's what's going on. The thank you to the amazing team that we have. Special thanks to Joseph Liang for reviewing my script, Michelle Grover for smoothing out the audio, Judy Chen for quality check, and to Ellen Kosh for ensuring the internal management of our enterprise. The beautiful music you hear now is the making of Anusha Kamesh, one of our regular hosts and manager of our editing team. You can find her work on AK Music on YouTube or on SoundCloud under her name. Know that we all do this on a voluntary basis on top of school, research, jobs, and our personal life, and we're super proud of where we got. However, we also know there's always room for improvement. So make sure you let us know if there's anything we 
can do better. If you like what we do, hold back. Hearing from you is the fuel that keeps us going, really. You can help us by leaving a review on your podcast app or giving us a shout out on social media. Just make sure you tag us so we can thank you. We're active on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with us there. I'll be waiting to hear from you. I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible. Until next time.